Chris. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 69. Speak and Destroy is a podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Russell Charrington. Armored Saint, the movie director Russell Charrington, tells the behind-the-scenes stories of interviewing James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich for his documentary. His relationship with Armored Saint goes all the way back to the tape-trading days of the early 80s metal scene. As many listeners of this show will perhaps already know, Metallica once extended an invitation to Armored Saint vocalist John Bush to join their band. There was also talk of Armored Saint bassist Joey Vera possibly stepping in after the untimely passing of the late Cliff Burton. Russell is also the award-winning director of Nightbreed, The Cabal Cut, a restoration of the Clive Barker horror classic. He's worked with Peter Gabriel, Nine Inch Nails, and Brian Eno, among others, and is a senior lecturer at the University of Derby. This is the first of three Armored Saint-related interviews, which I will be releasing back-to-back, and shortly after this episode goes up, I'll be posting my conversations with John Bush and Joey Vera. Remember, you can find Speak and Destroy at speakanddestroy.com, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, you can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. And Speak and Destroy is part of the PopCurse Podcast Network. The best thing you can do to support the show right now is to go into Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform of choice and leave a five-star rating and a nice little review. The other thing you could do, which I would greatly appreciate, is to go to Patreon and look up Speak and Destroy and become one of our Patreon supporters. Patreon supporters get access to bonus episodes called from my interview archives. Some of these bonus episodes that are exclusive to Patreon members include long conversations with the likes of Glenn Danzig and Kirk Hammett, among others. So here it is, my conversation with Russell Charrington, director of Armored Saint, the movie. This is Speak and Destroy. Tell me a little bit about your background in terms of, you know, a prior to, well before we get to this Armored Saint film. Okay, cool. Uh, so I'm a filmmaker. Uh, I'm basically, uh, I'm when I was doing my final year at film school, I made a conceptual film for Fate's Warning called A Pleasant Shade of Grey, where I collaborated with Joey and John Matthias and lots of people. So I go back to then and when I was at film school Joey used to score my movies so he used to do the film scores so we had, we had a friendship going way back I've actually known uh, Joey since the 80s and the guys in Armored Saint when I was like a music fan sending for demo tapes but in the 90s I became a filmmaker and I've been doing that ever since and then pretty much the biggest project that I did was for a guy called Clive Barker who directed Hellraiser of course yeah yeah, yeah, so I kind of took his version of Nightbreed and reconstructed it. I saw it that, yeah, which is, man, I, I mean, I, I haven't actually seen it, which I want to see, but I saw that you did that, and I, I didn't even realize that that was out there. And I, as someone who's a horror fan and a film fan, as much as I'm a music fan, um, it's right up my alley. I've got I've to yeah. watch that at some point between doing this interview and putting this interview out. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's online, so it's called The Cabal Cut of Nightbreed, which is basically my approach to it was to take the original screenplay and the novel and create a version of the film that was more like that because Clive had spent 20-odd years maligning the fact that the studio took the film away from him. Yes. So I created it basically as a friend and, a, and an admirer of his work, and then it took off and it was showed at like 50 film festivals around the world. And it led to like a resurgence in that movie, a thing called Occupy Medium, and it became really a huge big deal. And now all the Clive Barker fans think that that's the definitive version of Nightbreed. Yeah, I need to see it. I, I, you know, I actually did as a reporter, 
a set visit to the film Midnight Meat Train, which was a Clive Barker story. And Vinnie yeah. Jones was the, the top billed person in the film as the uh, as the villain. But yeah. I did like a what should have been a five minute interview and turned out to be like a 45 minute interview with an unknown actor named Bradley Cooper, who was the star of that film. And, uh, yeah, so obviously anytime I see him in anything or, or hear about him in any way, which also, bringing us full circle, Bradley Cooper is a Metallica fan. And well, you never know who's a Metallica fan, because yeah. when I was watching, uh, I went to the Chris Cornell tribute concert at uh -huh. the Forum. Yeah. And, uh, and we basically got great seats, and sat next to me headbanging was Peter Dinklage, the dwarf. From oh, Game amazing, of yes. That's yeah, awesome. And I, and I couldn't, I was trying to let him have his moment, but watching him play air guitar and headbanging to four Metallica songs was like totally cool. And, that's, really and, and it's really awesome too because, you know, sometimes their show, and this is, you know, a bit cynical, having lived in LA area for the last 20 years, sometimes people go to events just to be seen at them. But then when you see the headbanging and the air guitar and you're like, oh no, this is a fan. I had that same experience where, um, I got to see Metallica play during Comic-Con one year at a, a venue in downtown San Diego that was that's like a, you know, 1,400 cap room. So a really small room for them. And in the door you see, you know, Daryl from The Walking Dead and uh, Brian Posehn and, you know, people that are sort of like metal adjacent celebrity types. <clears throat> but once the show starts, I'm in the balcony. I look over. I see Rob Halford. Amazing. And then I look to my left and I see Bradley Cooper. And my first thought was, ah, oh, he's an actor. This is a cool place to be tonight. You know, what? Well, yeah, that's cool. Good for him. But then out of the corner of my eye, I realized through the entire set, he knows every word. He knows every song. He's headbanging. He's playing air guitar. And then sometime later, uh, there was another kind of smaller Metallica show at the Music Box in Hollywood, which was like a charity event that they did. And that's another 12... 1400 cap room and there's bradley cooper again this time watching from the soundboard and he's with lady gaga well it, it turns out that was the time period when they were working on that film together or about to start working on that film and as i would read in interviews like a year later uh bradley cooper introduced lady gaga to lars that night and that was the genesis of what then became you know, a year down the road, Metallica and Lady Gaga at the Grammys. So, yeah, it's like that real, that real fandom when you see that uh, in someone. It, it's it's invigorating because it, it kind of separates the uh, the wheat from the chaff. One of my one of my favorite kind of fan photos. I don't know if it's Glastonbury or one of the big festivals over there. It's a picture of Lars, Bradley Cooper, and Noel Gallagher hanging out together. <laughs> Sort of like, well, that checks all the boxes. <laughs> Lars has kind of went through his Oasis period. Yeah, yeah. He kind of wanted to be an Oasis kind of dude, and he hung out with them, and, he, and you know, Metallica Oasis tour kind of thing, you know. Yeah. He wanted all of that. So, yeah, he, he, he just did an article in Classic Rock on his favorite songs and albums and he talks about diamond head and deep purple and then one thing is i love oasis and i'm going yeah. oh well okay <laughs> and you know it's not the same as diamond head and deep purple and i am made it but anyway yeah who so can knock it eh? so yeah uh yeah that's great um so what was your first introduction you know prior to becoming a filmmaker even but just getting into this scene and this style of music, um, you know, what, what were some of the first bands you discovered and, and kind of your entrance into that community? Okay, so I bought my first record in 1980 and it was a Kiss record because mm. I was a Marvel Comics nerd growing up and yeah. then there was like adverts for Kiss in there. Yeah. And it was a correlation between superheroes and music and I kind of like went out with some like birthday money or some gifted money and went and hunted out and got Kiss Alive too because of the inside of it with the fire and everything. Yeah. And I was excited about that. Then in the UK, Kerrang! came out the same year. And I bought the first issue of Kerrang! because Kiss were in the magazine. And then I started reading Kerrang! every came out monthly to first, then two weekly, and then it became weekly. And I and then there was a thing called Armed and Dangerous, and you got all the American bands in there. Mm -hmm. And you could go to them and get their demo tapes. 
So I used to specialize in these things called international money orders. Where you <laughs> I remember those. <laughs> get one of those and I'd send it to America with a load of stamps. And then about three months later would arrive a cassette. And I got like the Metallica one, I got the Armored Saint one, I got the Malice one, I got the Rough Cut one. I got, I got, I was sending for all these LA tapes and they would come and I would play them and I was like immersed in this thing. And I bought Metal Massacre one and two. Mm. And then in England, there was a record shop called Shades on Wardour Street in London and it imported. So I used to like, and it had an advert in Kerrang that listed all the imports. So, you know, you would get things from there and you would read about American bands. And I think because I was the era where that L.A. scene, you know, I was into New Wave of British heavy metal. So I was into Diamond Dead and Iron Maiden and Priest and uh-huh. Saxon. But then, like, to get this new stuff coming out of America and read about Metallica and Armored Saint was, like, super cool. So, I, like I said, I sent for the tapes. Then you almost became pen pals with the band because sure. like, they were impressed that some guy from England had written to them. And then every year they would send me some stickers and badges and all kinds of stuff, and I would keep writing, and these letters would come back. So, like, twice a year. I did it with Queens, right? Got their two or mm-hmm. six each. So all these American bands, I came, I became like this nerd that knew all about them. And then the record shop that I went and bought my records from, I used to import them to that shop as well. So they'd have a list of imports and I'd buy them. And I used to buy American long box CDs and import them. <laughs> yeah. This American importer of, and this super knowledgeable person about American metal of that era and a little bit of glam rock too. You know, there was some stuff like Guns N' Roses that was really credible. But yeah, so we all got into it, went to the Marquee Club in London when they played. I saw Metallica really early on when they first started coming over. They were supposed to do a tour called the Rods, Metallica and Exciter and it got Mm -hmm. cancelled in about 1983 and we all had tickets for it and it was like three pounds to go and watch those three bands and yeah so we, we were just like music nerds trading stuff with people and it was amazing that's interesting about the rods because uh i wonder if that was like a johnny z because uh i had chris the the guy who engineered and mixed kill em all who was friends with johnny z i had him on the podcast and and that was his claim to fame around the time that he did that Metallica record was the Rods. There was some kind of association there. So I want because that seems like a strange combo, a Rods and Metallica tour. I bet that that was some kind of mega force uh, ranged thing. And in the UK, there was a label called Music for Nations. Mm-hmm. Those bands dropped on to Music for Nations by, you know, they get the manager guy from America, the mega force guy. Yeah. So he did that. I also have a really funny story, and it's just come back to me. So at what my first ever screening of Nightbreed the Cabal Cup was in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And, and basically after the screening, you had a table to go and sign autographs. And the guy next to me was the original Metallica bass player. <laughs> Ron McGovney, yeah. Yeah, he was next to me and he had lots of just like little photographs that he that were like he'd taken over the years. And I just went and had a chat with him and talked about music. And it's really funny that just to think about that now, that he was actually there and like, He's a kind of cool guy to interview at some point because he's so low key compared to everybody else. Absolutely, and I think he must live around North Carolina. Yeah, he so. does, and and he and he does show up at some different conventions because I have a, a good friend of mine who who passed away a few years ago, but one of my best friends uh, lived in Indianapolis, where I'm from originally, and he met Ron McGovney at a horror convention in Indianapolis, and I remember him sending me the picture. And uh, and I actually asked Ron about that photo a couple of years ago. Ron follows Speaking Destroy on Twitter. Yeah, because I've got a thing. I've got a set list for one of the first Metallica shows. And it lists all the people, obviously, on the ghetto. Then at the bottom, it says John Bush, new singer. All right, so uh, they, that friend Metallica were courting John Bush to actually become yes. their singer, inviting him to show yeah, I have a copy of that. I can send it over. Oh, that'd be brilliant. Yeah, please do. Uh, so, you know, one of the things I love about these stories of, of the tape trading days is we think about, you know, bands like Metallica, but also bands like Queensryche. And, you know, there's something about metal. Unlike punk rock, metal isn't afraid to aspire to big productions and big shows and huge audiences and that sort of thing. And I think a little bit gets lost in in the history books that it was a very punk rock thing, that early thrash scene in the sense that it was fanzines 
and local promoters and tape trading and, and people riding back and forth between the mail across the pond and all of that. That was it was very much like the punk scene and that it was a interconnected community. You know, it wasn't this massive audience. It was it seemed like everybody was a degree or two of separation from each other. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I felt so, because whenever I went and met the bands when they first came to the UK, they knew who you were, so they remembered your name, because one of them corresponded with you and sent it back. It wasn't somebody working for them like that. Right, right. It was with them that made the cassettes and sent them out. So you're actually dealing with them one-on-one, and when you turned up, people were like, oh, why are we you, you know, blah, blah, blah. So yeah. one of the guys in all the bands always knew who you were, and they'd introduce you to everybody else. Yeah. And you were like, you know, you. I mean, what, Metallica are all five years older than me, so the Armand Saint guys. So, like, when they were 21, I was a 16-year-old, so I was like a 16-year-old, yeah. and they were all 21. Well, that age gap doesn't seem like anything now, but back exactly. then... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and it would seem like huge, but nowadays yeah. it doesn't. And so, yeah. and so you're right in the middle for me because I'm 10 years younger than them. So that means you and I are five years apart. And to your yeah. point, uh, as an adult, um, yeah, you, people who are 15, 20 years older than you can feel like your peers. The age difference doesn't mean much. But, you know, when I was a kid, one of my first bands, uh, we were all 15 and our drummer was 19. And we called him Uncle Keith because we thought of this 19-year-old as like, you know, he was an adult. He had his own house. <laughs> you know, it's like we we thought of him as this like old man. You know, he's always oh, nineteen, and yeah. Now, of course, it's you know, the older you get, the less that that stuff matters. So yeah, there is a certain esteem that those that those years have in those formative years. And I think there's a kind of history to the fact that you go back that far with music, and you have these bands, and you followed them forever. And, you know, so I'm, I'm like, I know everything about the, that era of music. So I could, I just could keep making these films, mm-hmm. you know, unearthing bands. I could make, like, one of my things I'd like to do is make something about Metallica, but do it about every different era and not just do, like, Metallica, some kind of monster kind of thing, but actually go back to the very beginning mm-hmm. and then sequentially for every stage so when Dim- when metallica started they were essentially a diamond head tribute band oh of course so, yeah you know, they did five six diamond head mm-hmm. into metallica songs yeah so, and even the metallica songs they did one was a song that dave mustaine had brought in from panic and another i think was at least parts of a leather charm song one of james's bands before so yeah it was, that first show was very much cobbled together it was very much more about the idea of being a band than actually being a band i think at that point which is amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's super cool. You know, but on the first Metal Massacre album, it's only listed as James and Lars. There's no Mustaine and there's no McGovery until later yeah. press. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, it was them too starting a project together. Indeed, and I think Metallica is misspelled on the first pressing of Metal Massacre, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Which is awesome. So it's, it's, like, it's like metal history, isn't it? So Indeed. Uh, do you, so do you remember, you know, you mentioned that the the tour that almost happened. Do you remember the first time you did get to see them over there? Yeah, I saw Metallica uh, in London on Ride the Lightning. So they came over and they played, I think they played with the Lyceum. And we all kind of got the bus down and got the overnight bus home and we were all jumping up and down. And then, you know, like it was just like amazing. And then they came back and played Monsters of Rock the next summer. Mm. And they were on the same bill with Bon Sandwich between Bon Jovi and Rat was Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> Have fun following that Bon Jovi. <laughs> we're having the best day of you know because we were down the front. Fifty minutes of Metallica, it was awesome. And then they went away and made Master of Puppets. Came back, did the Master of Puppets tour. I went to that, hung out, you know, met them all a bunch of times. Just was this. And James has broken his arm, and I was right down the front. And he came up to me on Five Fire with Fire, and he stuck the microphone in my mouth, and I had to sing Five Fire with Fire. <laughs> and I put my tape, and it has a little asterisk next to the song, and it says guest vocals by me on the <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so even going back then, you know, you, you were just loving it, and you loved the bands, and it never went away. And, you know, like the only thing I really lament is that, Armand Saint never got to play 
like a European tour supporting Metallica. If it had been them rather than Anthrax, mm. their career would have been different. You know, yeah. and it, it kind of it's a it's a strange thing. The bands that seem to came come to Europe early on, like Metallica and Anthrax and, and other people like Slayer seem to do better than the ones that didn't get over the pond in the first five years. And so many of those bands did kind of make their fortunes, so to speak, overseas, which then led to them becoming even bigger in America. And then in, in other cases, it doesn't work that, that way at all. Uh, yeah, and of course, you know, I want to talk about your film. Uh, Armored Saint has such a history that's intertwined with Metallica and various points along the way, especially in the early days and especially in the early days of touring for Metallica. The, the first time I remember hearing of a Metallica show in my hometown in Indy was a, a really small club where they had come through with Armored Saint. And people, you know, metal people were talking about this legendary Metallica show. But like Metallica is like the opening act, you know, but almost like it felt like Armored Saint were already elder statesmen for some reason. And Metallica were like the up and comers. Well, they're exactly the same age, so they're all 57. Right. But, but what happened is Armored Saint was a much bigger band in L.A. than Metallica. So they could do 1,500, 2,000 people easily, and Metallica often supported them and they played together. And then when they went on the Wasp, Metallica, and Armored Saint tour mm -hmm. around America, they basically, uh, all that tour you know, that was the order. So it was Wasp, then Metallica, and Armored Saint opened. But when it got back down towards California, it switched, and it ah. became Armored Saint was the headliner, and Metallica opened for them, and they dropped Wasp. Wasp dropped off the tour in the middle of America, and it became that Armored Saint was bigger when they were doing those shows. Yeah. And then Metallica and Armored Saint had this rivalry where they blow each other off every night, and they spend hmm. the time on each other buses and they were just friends having a great time you know they were, the, they were just like as we say in England they took the piss out of each other mm -hmm. they just joked with each other and they just really super enjoyed it so they had this camaraderie straight away and then you know when Metallica became a little bit bigger after their European tours they took Armitain out again with them on, on an American tour and Armitain was a support band but again it, it was like that and they were just very involved in each other. And then obviously it diverged and Metallica went on their own journey towards the Black Album. And they were both shared management. They were both managed by Q Prime initially, Armand Saint before Metallica. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So so Cliff Bernstein and, and Peter Mensch uh, took Armand Saint on in about 1984 before they took Metallica on. So oh, I, ne a, I never knew that. Well, they saw Metallica or heard about Metallica because of Armored Saint, so which is kind of interesting. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I just read actually just like a couple of days ago as we we're taping this that the Red Hot Chili Peppers just left Q Prime, which is wild because I was you know one of the other marquee acts that that was there, not quite as long as Metallica, obviously, but they were there for a while. So you know you mentioned already the uh, you know John Bush future singer. And I know it's been it's been written about and talked about before, but from your perspective and as the historian and documentarian of Armored Saint, what was that whole situation and invitation all about? What can you, what can you tell me about the way that those conversations transpired or the timeline for that? Or I mean, anything? the thing about Saint is, and the title of the film is a band of brothers, so they grew up together. So they came, all came from Pasadena. They were all friends. They went to school together. They, they played in various bands at school, you know, like that lasted about three minutes. And at the end of school, they formed Armored Saint. And then Armored Saint started to take off. So and Metallica weren't as big, as I said. So when Metallica, and, you know, when we both know our doggage Lars is, and when Lars decided, oh, yeah, you know, this guy, John Bush, could be the singer in Metallica, when James didn't want to be the singer, they went, they went after him. And they tried and tried and tried to convince him, but John was saying, no, I want to be in the band with these guys. So he stayed out of friendship and brotherhood, etc. And if you jump forward to 2011, the anniversary show, mm -hmm. that play, and you see John Bush singing Four Horsemen, oh, yeah. you can see the look on James's face of sheer joy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's actually seeing it happen, what they wanted to happen, yeah. you know, those 30 years earlier and yeah. John Bush probably kills it and he and he would kill it he is 
probably the greatest singer of his generation. I mean, it, it's like a, it's like you know, you're a Marvel Comics fan, as am I, since way back in the day. It's like a what if issue, you know? Yeah. What if John Bush had said yes to Metallica? That's what you get to see at the 2011 show. You do, and you get to see how amazing it would be. Yeah, you do, totally. But there's also the story that when uh, Cliff Burton died, you know, one of the first people they went to was Joey. Hmm. So Joey Vera was like, you know, that one of their number one choices for bass player because they liked the guy and they knew him. They got on. He, he had a similar musical taste. He was a cool cat. You know, so they, they want they wanted him, and Joey didn't want to leave Armored Saint. So, again, it was the brotherhood kept him in the yeah. band. Yeah, so yeah. The, the, those things is, there's more to being in a band than rich and famous. Of course. You know, yeah, sometimes, like, James and Lars are meant to be in a band together. Well, the Armored Saint guys are still meant to be the same people in the same band all those years later, just like... James was always meant to be the singer in Metallica. It's just the way yeah. it is. Like, yeah. hey, what issue, if issue is cool, but yeah. the main story is the real exactly. deal. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The what if issue is cool, but it's there's a reason the main story is the main story. I agree. Yeah, and even, you know, with Megadeth, there was early, early on, uh, they, they had assumed that they were going to have a singer. And it was a similar sort of thing where Mustaine was finally like, I'll just sing. It's, you know. Uh, yeah. I think they arrived at that conclusion a little faster than Metallica did, but yeah, the well, what if issues are still still fun. Yeah, and actually, uh, Dave Mustaine featured in the film as well because there's a famous uh, dog piling incident at a party at Bet Betsy Bitch's house where all the Metallica guys were there. They are the same. Is guys. this the one? Is this the one that comes up in some kind of monster? Where, yeah. Okay. Where, yeah. where Dave talks about he was defending Lars's honor or whatever. Yeah. So you probably have the. The more well-rounded full story right from different sources and i think i hear that it's in mustaine's book as well and uh phil tells me a different story see so you have a different perspective on it because yeah. you know because obviously mustaine was probably thinking one thing lars was thinking another thing and phil was thinking another thing mm -hmm. and then it all just alcohol was involved and, <laughs> and then all of a sudden like phil's legs broken and he's got a gig yeah. to play in L.A. in front of 2,000 people. He goes on stage with a cast because he's broken his leg at a party with the Metallica guys. Yeah. So that's the film, too. So that story gets told as well. I think our own little microcosm study here is probably a good indication of how history happens in general, or the way history is recorded, right? Because it's like, you know, I just finished binge-watching The Last Kingdom on Netflix, and, you know, it's... Danes versus Saxons as England is coming together. And it's like, well, you know, I'm sure the Saxons recorded a somewhat different version of those events than the Danes would have had the Dane, you know, had the Vikings prevailed and, and, uh, you know, formed the UK instead. So it, yeah, it, it, whenever I hear stories like this one, it's always, it, it's not necessarily that anyone's ill intentioned or trying to, uh, intentionally tell a different story than the other person. It's just that, Everyone sees it their own way, let alone add alcohol to the mix. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, like, the, one of the reasons that I wanted to make the film was to put the urban myths to bed. Mm. So to deal with them once and for all, so to get the true perspective on every yeah. single and And with Armand Saint, you have the parallel of Dave Pritchard dying of leukemia. is like Metallica losing Cliff Burton. Yeah. So, you know, they, as far as Metallica was concerned, they had lost a brother, and the Armour Saint guys lost a brother. You know, yeah. And, yeah, and that's something that happens that brings them together and makes them think. You know, and also the, the big glue in this as well, in, in both band stories, a guy called Brian Slagle. Of course. Brian, Brian Slagle is a legend of, like, Los Angeles metal. And metal in general, his passion for that genre is huge. I mean, he's the biggest collector of new wave of British heavy metal that I've ever met. You know, and he's a Lego, you know, and he, he does that, collects it, he's really interested in it. And he's super knowledgeable. So he, he, when I did my interview with him, it was fantastic. It was a great interview, you know, two hours of like, perfect batting it backwards and forward. And, and he's so much in the film, it's untrue. And then he kind of like, kicked Lars's ass and said, you've got to be in this film. And, you know, the interview, you know, got set up more through Brian Slagle than actually me going through Q-Prime. You mentioned Joey Vera 
being a, a candidate to replace Cliff after Cliff's untimely passing. And it's interesting to me to then fast forward several decades and see that, you know, during different periods when Frankie Bello was, was out of Anthrax or couldn't make certain shows, that Joey was the guy that that would fill in with Anthrax, much as, you know, years prior to that, John Bush, of course, being an Anthrax. Um, does the film get into that that Armored Saint Anthrax relationship? Well, we talk more about Sound of White Noise. Which, so, by the way, yeah. is my favorite Anthrax album of all time. And I've said that since yeah. it came out. It, 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 for me, it's the best Anthrax album, too. Yeah, I love it. And I went to that tour and hung out with John. And, I saw them on know. that tour, I'll, yeah, with uh, White Zombie and Quicksand was the, the bill in the States. Anthrax headlining, yeah. yeah. I, I was, you know, treated so well. So, I mean, Scott Ian was a real gentleman about being in the film. They were playing Bloodstock. They were second headliner to the Scorpions. And he basically uh, drove himself over to my house and came and spent the afternoon with me and then went back to the festival. So, yeah, so he he was a total gentleman. He was super cool. We had a great conversation. And he was so respectful towards John and showed so much love. It's untrue. But when it comes to Joey and Anthrax, like a little known fact is that Scott Ian's best friend is Joey. Hmm. So they, they, their families spend time together, all, you know, so Pearl and Tracy are really good friends with Scott. And Scott calls up to Joey's studio to record demos for Anthrax albums. So they do lots of stuff together anyway. And then you chuck John into the mix and John got in there and then Joey was more involved. There was no armored saint. Joey's just one of the best musicians out there. You know, he's an engineer, producer, fantastic bass player, amazing on stage. So who else are you going to go to? He's just the right fit again. But I don't, I don't think he was ever destined to be an Anthrax record because Anthrax is, you know, Bella Benanti, Scott Ian, etc. Absolutely, yeah. But like you, I agree. I, I much prefer Bush as a singer, but that's no, that's no offense to the other guy. No, know? it's no, it's no offense to Joey, and I, and you know, and I love Among the Living. I love spreading the disease. You know, I love those. I love the Joey stuff. I've seen them with Joey more more than I was able to see them with John. But yeah, John's the guy for me. I sound a white noise just has a, a richness to it, a density, a diversity. A, uh, it was very much of that moment, uh, you know, because it came out in the midst of sort of the rise of grunge. And but it's not a grungy album, but it's but it's a very sort of mature Anthrax album. And then um, fast forward, I think we come for you all with John and with Rob Casciano on guitar. That's a top five anthrax album for me for sure i love that record too but sound of white yeah. noise that's the one for me yeah well you know like i'll always you know wax on about john but he's, he's there's something about his voice there's a you can hear to it word yeah, yeah you can hear every word that he sings yeah but he has he has the power of bon scott from acdc he, it so comes from that guttural place mm. that sings when it comes out one of my favorite things is uh, listening to him warm up before he goes on stage. So, you know, when Armatain have like an intro tape and then it's delivering the goods. And if you're lucky enough to be stood with John while he's singing delivering the goods, well, you know, before he goes on stage is one of the most goosebumpy moments you could possibly hear. It's just you know, that voice is so powerful. And this guy's voice hasn't receded. A lot of rock singers and yeah. metal singers. The voices have gone backwards. He can still mm-hmm. sing powerfully now. He was a, yeah. just a guy. A lot of these bands even, and I don't blame them for doing it because it's just it's necessity, really, but a lot of these bands even, they tune down a half step or whatever in the live settings to bring it down to where the vocalist's range is now. And, of course, I think a lot of that is demonstrative of when you're young and you're not necessarily thinking about this record is going to be timeless and, uh, you know, I'm going to be 60 <laughs> trying to do this thing I'm doing when I'm 20. But yeah, the fact that John has been somebody that's been able to preserve his voice and his health and still gives a very energetic performance on stage, like he's running around and going for it. But he he also just has a charisma where he's a rock star, but he seems approachable. You know, he doesn't, he's not intimidating in the way where like, 
you want to shy away from the guy. Like he seems like kind of a gregarious, friendly, outgoing person. And I think that that is a cool quality in a front man for a band like Armored Saint. Yeah. Well, well, he's my friend. So I just think he's my friend. Yeah, yeah so sure. We, we send each other articles about Trump. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we just like say things and, and you know, just have conversations. And stuff. And he's, He's actually a sports nut. I've never he, he can have three TVs on watching three different things of sport at the same time, which you know, like I, I don't get, but he he can do that, you know. So we can be somewhere in the world and uh, getting prepared, and he's just watching loads of sports. And, <laughs> right, which I like. I said I'm totally I'm total music nut. I'm not really into basketball and American football and ice hockey, but he is. So yeah, that's. Yeah, I follow some MMA and some traditional boxing, and I have a friend of mine who's who's just who's made it his mission to get me into American football in the last couple of years. But yeah, I didn't grow up into any sports at all. It was music and comic books and movies and you know Stephen King novels and the like. <laughs> that was my stuff. Rich to me, you know, but yeah, the sports yeah. thing, you know, it's, it's, uh, American sports always baffle British people, you know, like. Like our, you know, you call our football soccer, and we right? Like, you know, and, I, and we call I call we call baseball rounders because, like in England, women women play it. <laughs> so, yeah. And when you think about soccer hooligans, I think most Americans, if you were to say, "Oh, soccer fans are tough and violent," that's not what they're picturing at all, you know. But then, if you actually know what a soccer hooligan is, then then you get it. But yeah, football yeah. hooligan. That's a horrible part of society. That's what put me off football in this country. Hooligan. Mm. Mm. Sure. <laughs> Who wants to get their head kicked in by skinheads and Liam Gallagher when they're watching sports? Well, it's actually sports. it's actually middle class people that have jobs that wear oh. stupid. But probably are into Oasis that go around kicking people's heads. Yeah, off. even worse. Not metal. Yeah, not the real working class, and certainly no disrespect to skinheads. I love the traditional skins. I'm a big I'm a big supporter of the traditional skin movement, but yeah, I'm thinking more of the the fascist uh, leaning idiots. So, where are things with the film right now as we're speaking? Uh, there was that great trailer that came out, and there was press was starting to pop up in the in the metal world, which is how I came across it. Where are you at in the process as as we speak now? Right, so the film is cut, so the master cut is there, so the duration's there. So what we're doing is, well, the film, I've done it in chapters, so it's a chaptered movie. So we're creating groovy, moving chapter headers at the moment and putting them, dropping them in. Cool. Uh, the sound mix on the audio, but we're also putting in, you know, like live footage that we've unearthed and photos and create, create animation. So we're just doing a thing called overlays at the moment. So, you know, basically... Uh, we're waiting for film festivals to start again, and we're waiting. We want to do a prep, so we want to do an LA premiere basically, and invite everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, and have people like Metallica and Anthrax and Armored Saint and and the metal world at a premiere in a theater with a thousand people, and have some live stuff on the stage, have the bands there, and just celebrate. And it seems more important to do that than just give it away and just not let it have its proper release because it, it's it's a very classy thing. The film, my template to make it was uh, Running Down a Dream by Tom Petty, mm. the Tom Petty film. It was more meant to be like that, than, like I said, than the Anvil film and some kind of monster right. film. Or some of these films that people put out that are just made with a camera in a car park. It's very cinematically shot, you know, and the mm. sound is done properly and everything you know so it's it's yeah it's it's a proper high-end music documentary so i've had a few people come along and say i can distribute your film and we could make this amount of money and i go all right that's interesting but for me the so i want to do an la premiere maybe a new york premiere a london one and a berlin one yeah and i want to show it in things like the Berlin Film Festival, the Toronto, go to American Film Market, you know, maybe go to Cannes and, a, you know, London Film Festival and a couple of other documentary festivals. And then I want to kind of release it on things, things like Apple TV, mm-hmm. maybe Amazon, I'm the BBC, over here, Sky, or even something like Netflix on the documentary thing. So I want to do that. And then I want to do like a hard copy, hopefully through like something like Metal Blade, where it comes out on Blu-ray with all the the ton we've got about 
the film's two hours long and we've got about an hour and 30 minutes of extras. Nice. So, you know, and one of the extras is actually Metallica and it's James and Lars talking to each other. Oh, wow. Not yeah, so it's a, it's a conversation between James and Lars when they're talking about All I'm Saint, which is one of the extras. So, yeah. Given that it is Speaking Destroy, a podcast featuring interviews about Metallica, uh, what can you tell me about those interviews in particular, you know, a little up behind the scenes as far as like where they were conducted and what the vibe okay. was and, and the cutting room floor material. Yeah, sure. Okay. So the, the, first, the interviews were set up on the last European tour. So you mm -hmm. They came to Europe, did the, the tour, you know, did the hardwired tour, they came through. So yeah. I went and interviewed James in Manchester. And they stuck us in this like little tiny room, right? There wasn't really big to do filming in, but we like made it work. And and James, you know, we got there, and uh, James was such a cool cat. You know, we were supposed to like have like forty minutes with him, and he stayed for an hour and fifteen. You know, he came, and he basically he was so happy and joyous to talk about it. It was mm. such a great interview, and he was so down to earth and he wanted to tell the stories and you could see even you could see in the trailer there was such glee in his eyes when yeah. he was doing it and, he, and yeah he was a lovely human being so i really enjoyed that time with him the material permeates right through the film with them so obviously more in the early days and then a little bit around 2011 but it, yeah but what james says is fantastic and then Lars, I had to go on a bit of a dance with and I had to chase him around because I was originally meant to interview him in London and then I think Jimmy Page turned up. He was much more important than me. <laughs> Fair but, enough. <laughs> and I totally got looked after by Q Prime. So all the guys on the crew, we got looked after. And uh, the, the, guy, the guy who's their tech manager for the stage for Metallica and he's the bass roadie and everything, he basically used to work for Armored Saints, so he totally looked after mm. us. So we got Snake Pit. I got to go on a tour of all the stage, you know, all, where all the guitars are behind it. So the drums being set up. Because so I got to spend, like, the day on the stage. So, like, seeing nice. it everything happen in the venue. That's which awesome. Was, yeah, it was really cool. It gave us a bag of plectrums, which I gave to everybody, like, confession, Metallica confession. <laughs> And then when we watched the show in Manchester, my friend Di uh, Brian from Diamond Head was there. Brian sure. Tatler. Yeah, Brian Tatler's been on the show. He's great. Yeah. yeah, so me and Brian, I was with Brian watching Metallica, which was a bit of a buzz, because she liked watching Metallica with the guy. With <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Metallica. Yeah. And, you know, when Brian's a friend of mine, I've actually started making a film about Diamond Head. So oh, that's, that's fantastic. Cool. That's awesome. That's a great yeah. idea. I'm going to have to do more Metallica interviews. Yes, I, I mean, of, of, you have to. <laughs> yeah. And then at the Manchester show, uh, I had a, quite a long conversation with Kirk about horror movies. Cause, and then I, I told him I was going to Toronto that summer and, and I went to see his show of all those posters in Toronto as well. And I actually gave uh, Kirk some Nightbreed posters, so... I was going to say, I'm sure he probably was either familiar with that or excited to watch it if he wasn't. Yeah, and it was really cool. And, I, and he actually asked me to sign a poster, which was hilarious. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was one of those funny moments in life, and he went off. And then I actually saw him again in in uh, in L.A. when he played the UFO. I was oh, there with the Armored Saint guys. And uh, yeah, it was, and we were all, I was backstage with them and Kirk came and said hello and he remembered me and we chatted some more about horror stuff. So, so yeah, awesome. I mean, totally down to earth, nice guy. He was just with Ross Halpin that night and Ross Halpin can be really hard work. That's, you know, that, that seems to be the reputation. <laughs> he's, he's very bossy. He's very in charge. He's yeah. Like, like, Kirk, come here, do this, do that, do that. And I, I'm going, like, go away, we're having a conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of so then, eventually, I got the nod that I could interview Lars in five days' time in San Francisco. So I had to get a last-minute flight, get a friend of mine from Seattle to come down to San Francisco with his camera gear. And then the, the guy set up the interview in some boutique hotel <laughs> near where he lives, and then I drove over there met him and had time with Lars. And Lars, Lars is, was a very different animal to James. Because you met, because I met them when we were all young, 
meeting yeah. them there. Lars was really quite shrewd. He, he, he said, oh, we've met before, haven't we? I mean, maybe he just thinks he's met everybody. But And I said, yeah, we met a bunch of times in the 80s at these shows. And uh, we met at Monsters of Rock in 91, you know, and I was hanging out with the Queen's Rock guys backstage. And so I met them, like, quite a lot of times. But he said we'd met before. And we chatted. And one of my favourite moments with Lars was he stopped the interview and he says, he said, I should be asking you the questions because you know more than me. <laughs> <laughs> Which, that's another one of those surreal moments. Don't you just, don't you love those moments? I had a, you know, one of one of my great joys in adulthood is I've gotten to become uh, quite good friends with David Ellison, who's been on the podcast. And, and to some extent, Dave Mustaine as well. I'm friends with, with both of the Daves. But I've known David Ellison for a long time and, and speak to him pretty regularly so we we've done a number of interviews together and i uh i host uh this i used to before the pandemic host a series at the musicians institute in hollywood called the mi conversation series and basically it's me and a guest on stage i interview them for an hour and then it's a little seated theater it holds about 500 people and students and fans get up and ask questions for the last 30 minutes and i've had tony iomi and rob alford a lot of awesome guests that fit in the wheelhouse of what we're talking about. But anyway, I give you all that context only to say that uh, I had David Ellison there a couple of times for a couple of different projects. But one of the times I had him there, he was telling a story about, I think it was a story about him and Dave Mustaine meeting, which happened actually right down the street from where we do the Q&A series. And he stops like midway through his answer and he turns to me in front of the crowd and says, actually, Ryan, what, why don't you tell this story? You know, it better than I do. <laughs> like it's a huge compliment, but at the same time, it's like, no, but it's your life. <laughs> you, you actually lived it. I'm just a nerdy fan that knows about it. Yeah, no, no, but he is a really, really nice guy. Cause yeah. Uh, and at that Avalon show, he was backstage in the Armand Saint dressing room and we chatted and he was with the guy that sings for him. Tom. And then, and he, and he sort of said, uh, "Oh yeah, I'm going to be in Birmingham in uh, a month's time, and I'm going to be playing bass for KK Downing, and we're going to do this and we're going to do that." And Tom was going to, and I said, "Yeah, I've got tickets." And uh, anyway, so I went to the show, and then, who did I bump into? But Dave, and he said, "Hi, how are you? Good to see you." And he yeah. totally, totally remembered me from LA, and he was then introducing me to everybody, saying, "You know, this guy's really cool. He's." making a film, he was in LA doing this and the other. So yeah, so I, can, I get where you're coming from. He seems to be a super genuine cat. Yeah. You know, he's, yeah, he, he's, he's good, you know, like that. He's somebody that you, you actually know. He has got a lot of knowledge and a lot of love for the genre. And he had a yeah. lot of time yeah. for the fans as well. He wasn't one of these, he wasn't like Kirk where there was security keeping an eye on him. He was just walking around and just being a normal dude. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, to your point, and this kind of brings us full circle, I say this a lot, actually. One of my favorite things, of the many things I love about Metallica, is the way that they pay it forward to other bands and the way that they celebrate Diamond Head and Armored Saint. You know, bands that influenced them, bands that were peers of theirs, uh, bands that have come along in their wake that were influenced by them. The way that they champion that whole scene, that whole community, the way they love art and artists. And uh, even for Lars, you know, going through his phases where he's championing different painters and lately it's different filmmakers and you know of course Kirk with his horror stuff and James with you know hot rods and uh, you just go on down the list for a band that has had such an impact on culture and that has achieved such a sta status to still be such consummate fans and champions of other artists I think is just one of the greatest things about them and so it, it it's so on brand so to speak or so in character for Hetfield like you said to see him in the clip for your movie and that his face is lighting up and I bet he was more excited to talk to you about Armored Saint for an hour and a half than he would have been to talk about Metallica with some other interview you know so I, I think I that's awesome I don't he doesn't do very many kind of interviews and he doesn't do many video interviews he's really got to be passionate about it and that's what I found out but it, like I said, he was so engaging. It was one of my favorite interviews that I did. You know, I, I, I've totally got respect for the guy for his passion and things. I find, like I said, 
You know, I thought Lars was different now than when I first met him. He's much more shrewd now. He's much more business savvy. He's much more in the industry. Mm. You know, when I first met him, he was just a noisy kid like I was. And now he's a businessman. He knows so much. He, he's And he's more careful with what he says than when he was younger as well, which, I mean, that's just showing that he's grown up and he knows sure. a lot. And I, and I think that that's also one of the big distinguishing factors between Metallica and, and a lot of other bands that he steers the ship from that business point of view with with those concerns in mind and those and that eagle-eyed vantage point, you know, has kept them relevant and on top for a long time. It's a big yeah, part. Well, to my the my generation and your generation's ACDC. Really, they're, they're huge. They're, ACDC can play stadiums, Metallica can play stadiums. There's not a lot of other bands that can. Yeah. Are, are as big as those acts and still as relevant as those acts. And, that's, you know, a, so that's a great comparison. Because, you know, I always think, and I'm not the first person to say this, of course, but I think of Guns N' Roses as our generation's Rolling Stones. So, you know, that makes perfect sense that Metallica would be our ACDC. Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, they're just. You know, they're, they're, they're fantastic, uh, but I think make no mistake when you go to a Metallica concert, most of the music they play is from the first 10 years. They, they play yeah. an awful lot of the set is the first 10 years, and it's a great first 10 years in any band's history. Absolutely. So, yeah, they're, Untouchable. Yeah, they're a fantastic band. They'll always be relevant, and I think we'll always love the times that we've watched them play live. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Russell, for agreeing to do this and accepting the invitation and coming on. And I will be sure to, I can't wait to see the film and I'll be sure to do whatever I can uh, through my channels to promote it and make sure people know about it. And I mean, it's just that love, that passion, the friendship, camaraderie, everything that you have with Armored Saint and the way that that extends to Metallica and everybody from that scene, uh, you know, especially in dark times like right now, it's it's a it's a thrill to see it and share in it so thank for you. that i thank you thank you thank you for your time as well